Do you think depression's funny? I do. Nothing is inherently funny. Here's why I think it's funny inherently. Not inherently, but anything can be funny. Sure. Well, anything's funny. Anything can be funny, um, it, particularly when it's not happening to you. Something wrong with me, I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. I traveled all over the country talking to comedy people who have firsthand experience with clinical depression. I talked to a lot of people, and everyone has their own unique story to tell, and since they're comedians, their own unique story with jokes sprinkled in. And as I had all these conversations, certain themes began to rise to the surface. Common experiences, shared perspectives, life circumstances that echo from one person to the other. So on this episode, we're going to talk about some of those themes. Instead of focusing on one guest like we normally do, we're going to talk to a whole lot of different people. There was a pretty specific age range during which most people that I talked to first felt depression. Some were as young as five, some as old as 21, but for a lot of them, it hit right down the middle. The cracking voice years, the unexpected hair years. Jake Weissman is a stand-up comic based in L.A. and one of the writers and stars of Hampton DeVille, an upcoming sitcom on Comedy Central. Honestly, the first time I remember serious depression was pu- the first time puberty hit in middle school, around seventh or eighth grade. I, I mean, I couldn't believe it was happening. When puberty happens, uh, a lot of new chemicals are introduced into your body and brain. And so you don't really know what's happening. It just feels like an assault, kind of. It's like a very silent assault. But yeah, I absolutely remember seventh and eighth grade just feeling very dark thoughts all the time. Just like what? Like not wanting to be alive. And I remember being a, like kind of an asshole. Like in terms of, I was just, I hated myself so much. I became much more aware of my body and, and of, when I when I hit middle school, I became very aware of, who I was, I was an individual being compared to other people. So I just remember kind of like every day just having like this kind of layer of sludge over my brain. You're just like, what's the point of life? Like, I remember when I was around 13, that's when I had a bar mitzvah. Um, and I remember telling my rabbi, like, I don't believe in God. Is it okay to be bar mitzvah? And because it was so reformed, she said, okay. Well, imagine being a 12 or 13 year old being obsessed with the idea of no God. Like, there's no way that's a happy person, you know? Um, you're just like, life doesn't matter. My parents will die. Like, uh, every everything's going to die. You know, it's like all bullshit. And, and there's lack of privilege in the world. And it sucks. And it's pointless. And I think I just was just really unhappy. I just didn't enjoy anything. I, I felt stupid and just unworthy of everything I had. And I just kind of hated myself. And I would be really sarcastic to people all the time, like kind of in such an annoying prick way. Did that make you different from other I think I was, yes, I think I was pretty different. I think, you know, people who, a lot of people who went through puberty were like, cool, now I can touch boobs, you know, but I think I was like, no, the world's terrible. You boobs know? are meaningless. Yeah, I can, well, I think it was partially because no one wanted to let me touch their boobs, so I think that's more what was going on with me. But yeah, I was just very, like, just suddenly aware of how much you could hate yourself. That awareness came up a lot, not just of how much you could hate yourself, but how much you could detach from the world, sometimes how much you wanted to just not be there anymore. 
And that brings us to another theme that kept coming up in interview after interview, confusion about what was going on. This emotional chemical phenomenon is happening and you're young. You don't know what's going on. You don't have life experience to help identify it. You have never felt anything like this before. Mike Drucker is a stand-up and a writer. He's worked on Jimmy Fallon, SNL. He's co-head writer of an upcoming Bill Nye show for Netflix. But before all that, he was a confused teenager trying to put together or, at the very least, accept what was happening in his brain. I think high school I started to, like, because I was a very glum kid and I was a, I was a goth kid. Um, I wasn't full on goth cause I could never afford all the trappings of it, but I was like, I hung with goth kid. I hung out with goth kids and I like, you know, thought I pretended I liked gothy music because at the time that was how I got into a group of friends. Um, but I remember like even amongst goth kids, like, you know, we'd talk about death and I'd be like, I'd be like, but wouldn't it be great if we were dead? And I was like, no. And I'm like, I don't, why, what are we doing? What are we doing? And, you know, I had teachers who were always like, you know, you. I, I had one or two teachers who were good teachers who were like, I think you have depression. I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> As if, you know, I had something to gain by denying it. I knew I did. Um, but I why, think. Why were you trying to deny it? Um, because it felt like I was already on the outside in so many ways, you know, that admitting I had depression, especially because. You know, and whether you can argue about whether or not being depressed is now kind of chic or it's something that where it's more accepted. But like, you know, back then I was like, I know I'm not. That's like something you see in really bad commercials. Like I'm not like a woman looking out through a window during a rainstorm feeling bad about myself. You know, I'm just I just don't want to be alive, you know. Uh, so I was kind of in denial about it about, for a long time. Denial. Yeah, that comes up a lot, too. Another recurring theme. Mike talked about it. And denial is a product of stigma. Even kids get the sense that I shouldn't talk about this because having a mental illness is bad and wrong and I'll get locked away and have to wear a straitjacket in a padded room like all those things that are played for laughs on TV but don't seem funny when you're the one who's mentally ill. I don't want to be that. I'll, I'll act like I'm fine. I'll convince others and I'll convince myself that I'm fine. And you shouldn't. You should be open about it and defy society and make it better. And that's easy for me to say. I'm a straight white male with health insurance and a stable life. I'm privileged. The way you address stigma has to do with how much privilege you have. If you're not part of a group that gets routinely discriminated against, you can be out and proud about your depression because you have extra stability in place to support you. This was not the case for Jordan Carlos, who's appeared on MTV, The Colbert Report, and The Nightly Show. I recognized something was wrong with me. I, I, I didn't, as, as a person of color, um, therapy is not something big in, uh, with, peop with, with black people. We don't, we don't do it um, uh, all that often, or it's not spoken about, or it's, it's definitely stigmatized. And I remember that my brother, uh, when I was younger, he went to a therapist and we didn't talk about it, you know, um, because, but it was, it grew out of the fact that he had trouble in school. So I was like, ah, oh, well, he has trouble in school, so he's got to go see the, you know, see the therapist. Well, why, why is that, that uh, there's such a stigma in the black community about that? Um, because of secrets. Uh, secrets are, were a way of, um, secrets were a way of survival. So you would keep things secretive, like when we're getting the heck out of here, you know, for escape. So then um, that stayed in the collective unconscious. So 
uh, you'll have fam- deep family secrets, and um, but emoting and 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 feelings are uh, you know expressed in different ways. Hmm. So is, as a, as a way of so the the darker, more vulnerable emotions aren't expressed because th- that puts you in danger. Puts you in danger. Absolutely. Um, loose loose lips sink ships. So that speaking my truth and and going to a therapist, you know, was very, very difficult for me. But um, I did it. But he didn't originally want it. Jordan wanted a cure. I thought the therapist would be like, well, there you go. You know, take a little Zoloft, take a little Zanny. You're going to feel better, buddy. And uh, my therapist just never did. She's like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah, well. Right. <laughs> didn't go down that road. Yeah, didn't go down. She's like, all right, Tiger, well, we'll see you next week. <laughs> you know, was, and I tried, but even that I failed at. It kind of comes back to the old broken leg analogy. If your leg is broken, you go to the hospital. If your mind is out of whack, you go to the doctor. And several people I talked to wanted to treat their mental illness the same way, basically. Have someone set it right, let it heal, and forget about it. It's in the past. It's gone. I mean, you don't want to take anti-leg-breaking pills and talk to a therapist about your leg for the rest of your life. Newly diagnosed depressives want a cure. Michael Ian Black is an actor, comedian, and author. He's part of the comedy group The State. He's been on TV shows like Ed and movies like Wet Hot American Summer. I mean, really what I was looking for was a magic pill. Yeah. Uh, I was looking for some sort of antidepressant that would uh, alleviate the symptoms and allow me to go about my life in such a way that did not require therapy. Why didn't you want to go to therapy? Um, I don't think I was ready to delve into any actual pain that I might have had in my in my past, I didn't know that I believed it would be an effective use of my time. Um, but I think, and, and I didn't want to commit to it. Um, but I think ultimately I was just afraid. I was afraid to dredge up whatever there was to dredge up. What's bad about dredging things up? Um, well, I was completely walled off to myself. And so it would have required, uh, unwalling. Hmm. Destruction. That's right. Yeah. A teardown. That's exactly right. He got his pills, though. I don't remember the first prescription I was put on, but it worked. Uh, Whatever SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, they put me on uh, seemed to work within a couple of weeks. I definitely felt better. Um and then, and I was on that for a while, and then I let the sub- prescription. It wasn't a subscription, although the Didn't subscription by mail with n- a label on it. <laughs> the subscription model <laughs> of pharmacological substances I could get behind. Yeah, it sounds good. I would subscribe to several of them, <laughs> um, but I let this prescription lapse, and then uh, went years before refilling it. And in those years, uh got depressed again. I don't think it ever got as bad again as it did when I was in my twenties. Um, but into my early to mid thirties, yeah, I definitely relapsed. Yeah. Um, I've seen you describe your depression as mild depression. Has that been, do you think that's always been the case or is that how it is today? No, I mean, I'm back on 
medication and have been for years mm -hmm. and uh don't i don't feel particularly bad about anything right now okay okay i mean i'm not thrilled to be here <laughs> well okay sorry i mean i didn't know we were going to be talking about <laughs> you really did had no idea this was going to be the subject <laughs> gonna talk about your new movie instead um now i'm depressed i don't have a new movie <laughs> see god see, this sucks i made sure you didn't have a new movie <laughs> so you'd be prepared uh for that moment um you talked about how you wanted to get the pill so you wouldn't have to go to therapy. Did you end up going to therapy? I did. When was that? Um, well, uh, I went to couples therapy with my wife first, uh, and then started going by myself a bit and then realized that she was the problem all along. So I was fine. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor said that you won. Yeah, yeah. And so you wouldn't have to. Yeah, I got a medal. I got a trophy. I got back. a sash. It was great. Yeah. No, well, that I mean, that's ultimately what couples therapy is all about, deciding who's right. That's right. Michael Ian Black embracing victory in therapy and, more seriously, accepting that he'll likely be on meds forever. There's this reckoning that people seem to have about meds in these interviews. You kind of have to figure out your position on them, and everyone has given it quite a bit of thought. Now, at this juncture, I would like to apologize to you, dear listener, because I am very fond of analogies. I probably make way too many of them, but here's another. Figuring out whether to treat depression with meds is like choosing whether to own a car. Is the cost of owning it worth it for all you get? Or can you get by riding public transportation and walking? You evaluate your needs, your lifestyle, you make a call. I'm a big proponent of meds. Jenny Jaffe is a comedy writer and performer. She's currently writing for the Big Hero 6 TV show. And she's the founder of Project You Are OK, a nonprofit dedicated to destigmatizing mental illness for young people. I think I had that thing that a lot of people, especially who start taking meds when they're young, have, which is, you know, could I be more creative or funnier if I, if I stopped taking meds? So I went off cold turkey a couple times. Um, and instead of becoming creative or funnier, I just became um, too depressed to function. Why do you think that is? You hear that all the time. I've heard that from from fairly famous and successful comedians and and just people in society saying, uh, creative people in society saying, if I take these meds, I'm going to lose my edge. I'm going to lose my creativity. Why do you think that perception exists? Well, I think there's a couple. I think there's a few reasons. I think the first is that there's such a widespread mistrust of any sort of psychiatric medication and the way it's portrayed in media certainly is like, uh, you know, a person goes to we think about it as being a lobotomy in yeah. some way. Happy pills. They're exactly. Called. Happy yeah. pills. The way we talk about them, your crazy Instead pills. Instead of function pills and it's, exist it's, pills. It's your function <laughs> at the base level that people uh, that neurotypical get people get to function at all the time it's which is and it's not like your it, it's it's like get taking meds for me felt when I did it for the first time it felt like I've worn glasses since I was a little little kid and the first time I put on a pair of glasses and looked around and I was like oh my god this is the level of detail with which other people get to see the world and that's what taking meds felt like for me, where I was like, this is the baseline people function with. Like my brain is just is 
processing things as they're coming in and, and not necessarily looking at everything as another reason to have a panic attack. And, um, and I'm letting go of thoughts more easily and I'm not necessarily wanting to kill myself right now. Like that's, it's, it's a, it doesn't change who you are. It just, it just levels your personal playing field a little bit. Um, I think, and I, the other reason I think is that when you're very, you know, I grew up and and with the best of intentions, the people around me would tell me like, you know, well, you have to deal with all this stuff and that's really hard, but like, you know, all creative people do. Or like, you know, maybe like this is your gift is your curse, like that sort of thing. And I think that was really helpful. But I also think I started to believe that the reason I was creative, the reason that I was able to be a good writer and the reason that people uh, thought I was funny is because is because I was um, I was mentally ill. And to me, it's almost an in spite of thing. And I think it is developed as a coping mechanism, but it's also uh, it's not easy to simultaneously create and be like at my worst, there's nothing that's being created. The best thing that came out of those years for me was just the amount of time, the the amount of time I spent in bed trying to make myself feel better. I was giving myself an accidental comedy education. (laughs) So you were laying in bed watching like all these DVDs? Everything. And like, Mm. you know, I just became really voracious about it. Depressive comedy grad school. It kind of was. Jenny Jaffe uses meds to address her depression and also her OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. She came to terms with that one after listening to comedian Maria Bamford talk about it. Other people I talk to carry anxiety disorders around with their depression. That's super common. Anxiety is Barney to depression's Fred. Anxiety is Oates. Depression is Hall. This is the next theme that keeps coming up. Depression almost never rides alone. Sarah Benincasa is a writer and comedian, author of a one-person show and book called Agora Fabulous. It's about her struggle with agoraphobia, the fear of going outside. At 21, she was a college student for whom depression treatments had not worked very well, and things started to fall apart. I was afraid of leaving the house. I was not leaving the house. I wasn't eating because it's really hard to access food when you don't leave the house. And I was at Emerson College. I was halfway through my junior year. I eventually became so... Uh, afraid to leave the house. Not only, I mean, agoraphobia is like painting yourself into a corner. And then eventually when the fear keeps happening in that corner, then you don't know what to do and you become fatigued. A lot of people with agoraphobia become very tired of how they feel. And so for me, the desire for suicide became this like ceaseless drumbeat. I lost a bunch of weight and that's not good because you're not eating. Uh, I, I didn't do it in a healthy way. So when you're not eating, your brain gets pretty stupid, pretty fast. And, um, so that was happening. And eventually I became afraid to leave my bedroom. So I was just like pissing in, in bowls. Um, and I lived in a studio apartment. There was a one room studio apartment in Boston and I was not functioning as a human being. So I was very fortunate that my friends called my parents and eventually and said, you need to come get her. Uh, she's not going to class. And she's, they didn't know about the pissing and bowls thing until later, but, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a terrible time. And it was this sort of fear, hopelessness cocktail. How aware were you of 
what was going on. Like you, you must have sensed something is going wrong here, but did you say, okay, this is agoraphobia. This is a compounded depression. Like, like what state were you in to be able to be aware of what it was that was happening? Uh, I would say that my awareness decreased rapidly as my food intake decreased. So my food intake decreased. I figured out that pretty quickly that I felt terrible whenever I was awake. If I didn't have food, I would be tired because you don't, you know, I wasn't putting energy in my body. I was putting fuel in my body. So then I could sleep a lot. And so that became, we talk about disordered eating and certainly it was disordered eating, but it was not what you would call anorexia nervosa or exercise bulimia or traditional bulimia. It wasn't any of that stuff. It was uh, very much just a practical means for me. And so there wasn't a lot of logic associated with it. Typically, your logical brain goes out the window at that point. And so I just was functioning in a sign of animal state eventually. Sarah got help. Her parents came and brought her home, got her to a doctor, helped her recover. Today, she goes to colleges to talk about mental illness. She helps people. And that's another character I heard a lot in these stories, the helpful parent. Being on hand, being available, it makes a huge difference. Coming up, the hilarious world of self-destruction and suicide. The hilarious world of depression is supported by health partners and by makeitok.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations about mental illness and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness. Not just talking about depression, all kinds of mental illness. We're talking to a lot of comedians on this show, and we're having some laughs, and that's great. It's a good way to deal with depression, knock down the power of the disease a little bit, but it's still a serious disease, and it's something that we need to take seriously, and it's something that you need to take seriously if it's in your life, whether it's affecting you or someone around you. The good news, everybody can get help. You can talk to your loved ones. You can have conversations about this. You can talk to your friends. It can be an awkward conversation. Makeitok.org is full of information that you can use to make it less awkward. Tools you can use, conversation starters, ways to bridge that gap that you might run into. Find information there to start those conversations and start talking. Don't go it alone. Don't let stigma win. Makeitok.org. Michael Ian Black, who we heard from earlier, first sought treatment for depression when his life was pretty much going great. His sketch comedy group, The State, got a show on MTV right out of college at NYU. Can you imagine? He was riding high, and that's when it hit the hardest. And he wasn't the only one hit by a brutal attack right when life should have been at its sweetest. Bill Corbett is a writer and comedian known for his work on Mystery Science Theater 3000, where he was the voice of a robot puppet that made fun of terrible movies with his friends. Back in the 90s, the show was a huge hit. Bill was enjoying great success. He was on a press tour in New York and was supposed to appear at the Museum of Broadcasting to cement the show's historical importance. He knew about his depression, but had blown off treating it most of his life. On this tour, he drank and partied his way through the city. What happened next may not surprise you. Well, we'd done a bunch of uh, 
a bunch of press of press availabilities and shows. As I think we did the national CBS show. I never made it to the Museum of Broadcasting because I just woke up in the hotel on the day we were to go, and I just said, I don't know what to do. I can't get out of the hotel room. It's classic. What do you mean you couldn't get out of the hotel I couldn't room? bring myself to... I couldn't bring myself to move or uh, um, do anything except feel like I wanted to cry, honestly, you know, and and was. Couldn't leave the bed? Couldn't leave the bed. um, Felt like I had to get home. There was a fair amount of weird paranoia going through it. Like, if I don't get home, something bad is going to happen. And I, you know, I recognize that as the throes of, of what I was in now, but it felt really real at the time. So you're in the hotel room and you can't get out, then what do you do? Um, I call my colleagues and tell them, look, I don't know what I can do. You know, um, they were aware that I was, you know, hungover and drinking a lot. Mm. Some of them were with me on that, you know, uh, journey. But I said, I don't think I can make it today. And, you know, they were great. And that's another factor, too. Like, I worked with people I really liked and had a good time with and felt like, boy, I'm kind of getting everything out of this. And I came on as a writer and I got to perform, like, without even asking. And so, and I worked with good people and we didn't really kill ourselves doing the show compared to what I heard from my sitcom friends out in L.A. So, um they understood. They were a little puzzled, I think, as to, you know, well, can't you tough it out a day or two? And <laughs> like, no, I, I don't think I can. So I just got myself to Newark Airport, shaking the whole way, and went home. What Bill Corbett went through reminded me of the story Dick Cavett told a couple episodes ago, right down to the setting. I went to the Wyndham Hotel on a day that I was to tape with a reasonably well-known guest, uh, Lord Olivier, as Sir Laurence Olivier or Laurence Olivier was at that time, mm-hmm. and I was just—I didn't—I wanted to be under the rug, and I thought this is evil. Laurence Olivier, I should be thrilled. I should have been looking forward to this for weeks. He's in the next room upstairs where we're going to shoot, and I want to go home. So Corbett was living the sci-fi comedy nerd version of that same dream comes true and becomes a nightmare thing that Dick Cavett had described. I asked Bill about it. So why do you think at this pinnacle of of your career to that point uh, that this happened? Like why? I mean, when things like you said, what better job could you have had and what yeah. more success could you be having? Yeah, I don't. Here's, I think it is the momentum of the ambition and the striving all those years of trying to get stuff going um, in theater and comedy and all that and just putting it together. And that was such a momentum is the word that I keep feeling like just it was such an organizing principle for life for so many years that that when it when that was sort of met, <laughs> at least for the time being. I had to deal with whatever uh, I wasn't dealing with for all that time, which sounds very pop psychology, but I think there's some truth to it. Like, all right, now you're here. Now this is the thing you thought was going to make you extremely happy. And it's not quite there, is it? (laughs) So it was was kind of the the letdown of of success. It was the day after Christmas. Yeah. I mean, that's my surmisal after the fact. Of course, I had no self-awareness at the time. It's all 2020. Yeah. Um, 
what, how have you taken care of your depression since then? Um, not well until just the last couple of years. Really? Well, I, I managed to, uh, white knuckle a lot of it. And then I have high functioning, you know, months at a time. And then I crash a little bit. I say not well, I'm not sure that's fair to me, but, uh, I mean, I have a couple of core things that I do, which is, which is, um, exercise, meditate. Um, I've been so resistant to medication though. It's really mulish and weird until the last year. I mean, I tried it before and I gained a lot of weight and I felt sluggish. And so I was like, all right, not for me. Um, but you know, in the last 10 years, they've, they've come so far with it. Yeah. They've so been now working on it. <laughs> they, they've been working on it and they've done a good damn job. Um, so yeah, as of a couple of months ago, I got on and it's like, oh yeah, it's like, that's the thing that I needed. That was the, you know, it's not just pure willpower of getting up and exercising and stopping drinking and all that. It, there are people who've been concerned about this issue and they're there for you too. He doesn't mean you two, the band, at least I don't think. I should give Bill a call and ask him. Bill eventually extricated himself from that hotel. He got home to Minnesota, and then he really considered killing himself because he could not go on like that any longer. He ended up checking into a hospital for a few days instead, got some treatment, and was better after that. And we'll use that as our segue into suicide. Segway into Suicide, incidentally, is my favorite U2 album. Now, really, I could have segued into the topic of suicide from any interview I did because it comes up all the time. It came up a few times in tape I used just on this episode. Because for people with depression, it's always out there as a visible path. You can swear up and down that you'll never do it. You can know in your bones that you'll never do it. But you understand it a hell of a lot better than... What was the word Jenny Jaffe used? Neurotypical people do. And although I personally urge you to not go down that road, I urge you to reach out to resources that are available, many free of charge. Although I personally wish I could go to your house and hang out and watch movies with you until it's better, this is a path that some people choose. It's why I couldn't interview several comedians for this podcast, like Richard Jenny, Drake Sather, Freddie Prinze. We heard from Mike Drucker earlier in the show. For example, I wrote a bit recently about how I, I can't commit suicide because I'm worried that all my friends will just write three paragraphs about themselves on Facebook. <laughs> like the idea that like whenever you know someone who commits suicide, it's always like everyone writes like a, this long post about their personal relationship with this person. You're like, he hated you. <laughs> like you can, that, I, can I can't kill myself because someone's going to get like 200 likes off my death. <laughs> <laughs> and that like, yeah, that is a funny way to convey it. But there's also a real existential fear that my death will just be used by someone else for attention. <laughs> you're, you're just going to be a stepping stone. Right. I'm just a stepping stone for somebody, for somebody else. For like an inspiring BuzzFeed post. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Five ways that only you know, five ways to die that only Mike Drucker. Will right. Understand. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Mike says these thoughts are often top of mind for him. You say you've you've come close to suicide yeah. a, a few times. Um, what was the first time that happened? First time, I think, was in high school. I uh, did a bunch of research, and everything I found... I mean, research is like, you know, Googling. You know, re research is a very grandiose term for, like, dug deep in forums that had people who hadn't committed suicide because they were still writing something, you know. But um, I, I looked into it, and there was, like... 
different things and people were, and like nobody in my family had like a gun or anything um which is actually something like i briefly spoke with andy richter about like whenever we talk about like you know gun laws it's like yeah if my parents had a gun i'd probably be dead yeah. like if my parents had a gun i would have killed myself by now and i that and it sounds like i'm saying that in a joking cadence but you know the difficult like people should not underestimate the ability of the difficulty of suicide to dissuade someone from committing suicide that's why they put the uh, the big fences on bridges now. But but yeah, because if it's inconvenient, you know, you're like, oh, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to do this because if it can block you in that moment of impulse, exactly, exactly, it's you won't do it. Yeah, at least you won't do it in that moment. Um, and it is an impulse thing. It's you know, there's always the dull. You know, for me, there's always a dull desire to not exist, but it's not an impulse to do something about it at the moment. If that makes sense. Have you ever attempted? Oh yeah. I, I, well, I got, I got up to the point where I like had like figured out at least according to forums, uh, how many pills you'd need to take. And I like counted them out and I was about to do it. And I think I just chickened out, you know, um, I just couldn't do it in the moment. I also, there's part of me that was like, I can't swallow this many pills. Like again, like the inconvenience of suicide outweighed the inconvenience of life. I mean, I've definitely got to the point of buying things. I've gotten to the point of like, you know, buying things to set up uh, a gas oven to asphyxiate uh, up to a couple years ago. Like I, you know, bought things. I bought a bag. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to like seal it off this way. I'm going to put my head in there. I'm going to turn on the gas. I'm like, what am I? I'm not going to get it right. Like (laughs) there's also that fear that it's like, yeah, you're not going to get it right. And that's going to be worse. You're going to fail. And then it's going to be like a whole thing you have to go through. And like, so uh, I've gotten to the point where I've gotten up to buying things and planning, but never to the point where I've even started the attempt, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So um, what is your mental state in those moments as opposed to, I mean, I assume you didn't do that earlier today no, 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 before no, no. I talked to you. No, no, no. As, as opposed to your um, a more average state that you're in. It's almost, well, the weird thing is it's sort of, in movies they always make it seem like it's this weird crying operation where you're like weeping and like you're putting on really sad music and, you know, you write a letter. And in those moments it was very matter of fact. It was very like, okay, I'll do this. Then I will do this. Then I will do this. Then I'm fine. Um, it was, it was very not calculating cause there was still emotion to it, but it was very like, you know, if you were going to, you know, cook, cook a recipe that you've never cooked before, you're like, okay, this is what I need. This is how I do it. I hope if I mess it up, it's not going to be good, but this is what you do. And then at the end, it'll be good. Yeah. So yeah. Does, does logic ever in, enter and do it in terms of like, Oh, if this succeeds, I won't feel any relief. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to enjoy being free of all this depression in this scenario. Yes, uh, that definitely comes in. That's usually not what stop stops it. It's the logic that usually stops is the logic of like you don't know what you're doing, and the likelihood of failure is way higher than the likelihood of success. Um, I think that I know, you know that. You're being saved by your own depression. I'm being by, saved by, by, my by your low opinion of yourself. Exactly. <laughs> my own low self-esteem has kept me from suicide many times, which is exactly true. That's ex- it's so funny because that's exactly true. It's like it's like I'm like, oh, I, I'd suck at this. I'm never going to succeed at suicide. <laughs>
I've listened back to that little section there a bunch of times, and I still don't know what to think of it. I like Mike Drucker a lot. I think he's a good guy. He's super funny. He's nice. I do not wish to see him kill himself. And there we are joking about his inability to do that, despite sometimes wanting to. It's kind of horrifying because of the topic, and it's also horrifying given how matter-of-fact it is to, to talk about it like that. It's horrifying how everyday that topic is. But it's also absolutely funny. It's funny. And that brings us to comedy itself. Comedy is super fun. You get to perform in front of people, make them happy, hear the laughter, gain the anonymous approval of strangers, which you can insert into the places where love and confidence ought to be. Everyone goes home happy, except for the depressed person, but they're used to it. The people I talk to for this podcast pay their bills with money from jokes. And it's a career option that is, at the same time, really beneficial for depressives and a horrible idea. Beneficial because you get to connect with other humans and express yourself, but also not so beneficial given that it's a strange world full of people trying to work through their issues on stage in front of drinking strangers. Aparna Nansherla is a writer and stand-up comedian based in New York. She worked on Late Night with Seth Meyers. She's appeared on Conan. I think definitely when I first started, I would, like, when a set didn't go well, I would take it, like, really hard. And I would, like, cry and get really um, down on myself. And I think I really, even though it's like you're supposed to bomb a lot when you start, I think it was still like, I was like, why am I not figuring this out? Like, why is it so hard to like say what I want on stage or like get what's on the paper out loud? Like I, I would get very like frustrated. And I think part of that is that depressive mindset of like, oh, you're just wasting everyone's time. But also just like I tend to be a perfectionist anyway. So it's like nothing is ever really good enough. What do you mean? Mm, I think it is just like your standard for for success is like always there's something better or there's a someone doing it better and that's like what you're aiming toward but it's never like oh this was enough like I did a good job. We can't all relate to doing 5 minutes on Conan or playing a casino in the Midwest. But all of us, people with depression and just everybody, really, we all have to put ourselves out into the world. We equip ourselves as best we can. We learn about who we are, and then we just go out there. When I spoke to Aparna, she was about to get on a plane and fly out to do a show at a university. She says it can get pretty lonely. And also, like, you know, if the show, if something about the show bothered you, then you sort of have to sit with that. Um, and I mean, I... I like meeting new people, but I wouldn't say I'm like naturally like super outgoing or, or gregarious. So it's like a lot of times I'll like do my show and then I'll go back to my room and have to sort of just like negotiate my mood for the rest of the time that I'm there. What do you mean negotiate your mood? Well, like sometimes when you're, when I'm on my own, I get like very... Um, I don't know if it's like depressive or just like very existential of like, what is the point? Like, this is just like, 
a like endless rat race of like go to the show, come back to hotel. <laughs> like I think I go very zero to existential very quickly. <laughs> you have to. You have to. Do you have to consciously? Uh, set a mood that you want to be in? Sort of. Like, I feel like I've been finding ways to cultivate a better mood, but I definitely have to be, like, vigilant that I don't, like, slide into that sort of constant questioning. Questioning of what am I doing with my life? What's the purpose of life? Yeah. Yeah. I think just, like, what is the point of any of it? So how do you how do you manage that? Like, do you... You look at a certain photograph or chant something or yeah, I <laughs> go mean, for I a walk. I feel like I've been trying a variety of things. Like I um, have found that uh, meditation helps, though I haven't, like I'll do it for a while and then I'll kind of slack. But I've always found that it does help uh, a lot with sort of managing your mind and like all your thoughts it helps you sort of calm down easier and um and then I found exercise helps maybe more with anxiety but also probably with depression uh and what else I think I also uh, and this is maybe part of like my sense of humor but I focus a lot on like sort of mundane day-to-day details and I think that that sort of grounds me sometimes where I'm like trying, I'm like zooming out too much and thinking too much about the big questions. Like if I just sort of focus on like a small interaction or like a tiny detail, that's like where I find humor. And like, I'm like, if you enjoy the like tiniest things, then that'll at least keep, keep it interesting. I really wish I could add one last bit of tape right here. Something that would support one last theme that had risen to the surface. A theme of, but in the end, everything's going to be okay. Happy ending. Ta-da. Jazz hands. That sort of nice note of hope that ties a bow on everything and sends you out feeling good. While neither life nor depression work like that, there isn't always that tight little ending. There's just awareness and coping and moving forward, making a few jokes along the way. Because maybe the jokes will empower us and make the disease less intimidating. Maybe we can understand the disease better by joking about it, taking it apart, twisting it around to find the humor, emerging wiser as a result. Or maybe not. I don't know. But at least we're talking about this together. Okay, then. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Chrissy Pease is our producer. Our executive producer is Kate Moose. Special thanks to Jonathan Blakely. Johnny Vince Evans was our technical director for this episode. Our theme song, Pagliacci, was created for us and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller. Listen to all of his music that you can because it is great. RhettMiller.com If you need immediate help, confidential help is available for free. Call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by makeitokay.org. 
which is a campaign to start conversations about mental illness and to stop the stigma. It's a way for you to find help either for yourself or for people around you. It's a place you can get information and get tips to start those conversations that can be a little bit awkward sometimes, where you want to reach out to somebody and help, but you don't really know what to say. This is a resource. You can use this. It's a place to check out for yourself and for others. Makeitokay.org. Find it, use it, make it okay. On the next episode, comedian Jen Kirkman anthropomorphizes her mental illnesses. It's like the drunk son whose dad lets him have a seat at the corporate table. It's like my panic and anxiety are just these things that have terrible ideas. I'm John Moe. Bye now. says doc that's the problem what if i was to tell you i'm piachi this great big smile is just for show what if i was to tell you this is just grease paint would you say i'm a hopeless case say it ain't so I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Hi, everyone. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and we host the Dinner Party Download, the culture show designed to fuel your weekend conversations. Each week, we give you everything you need for successful party going, including cocktail recipes, weird true tales from history, and charmingly bad jokes. Hopefully, they are charming. Yes, we try. Plus, conversations with some of the world's most creative folks, from Scarlett Johansson to Salman Rushdie. The Dinner Party Download. Find it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.